Hey guys, I just had an amazing conversation with Amir Majali from True Falafel. He left Jordan with his French wife, moved to Mumbai to start a falafel brand. Can you believe that? We spoke about the motivation that it takes to leave one's country, the research that it takes to leave one's country and go into another country and set up a brand. That's not easy at all. We also spoke about what is it to become a new father. We spoke about what are the best things to have in Lebanese food. Right? and the motivation and the aspiration it takes to build a successful food brand. And by the way, don't forget to hit subscribe because we have more amazing guests coming in the very next week. So Amir, uh, we met at Founders Pub, uh, which was an event that me and Sanket you know, started out where we wanted founders to kind of come together. And I found you and your story amazing and i found it extremely inspiring right which because of which i wanted to have you on the show so you founded true falafel and we will talk a little bit more about that shortly but before that tell me your story of why would you leave jordan along with the french wife not indian i i could have when i met you i could have bet anything your wife would have been indian that that's why you moved to india but when you told me you have a french wife and no connection to india what made you leave Jordan or France or wherever you, you, your wife is from and moved to India. What is that one factor that you're like, this is the place? I think, but that's the thing. It's, it's, it, there's two factors. Leaving Jordan was one. Coming to India was another. They're kind of two, okay. two, two different ones. Two okay. different ones. Uh, leaving Jordan. So we, we were both corporate people and we both did that for our whole lives. And we wanted to kind of take that step and become entrepreneurs ourselves. And to do that, we wanted to leave Jordan. We didn't want to do it in Jordan. Mm -hmm. Jordan's a lovely place. It's a great place for families. It's quiet. It's nice. Everybody knows everybody. It's very homey. But when you're 20-something, you want to go out and see mm -hmm. the world. You want to go do something. You want to be excited about mm -hmm. the stuff that you're doing. And that you can't. I don't want to say you can't do it in Jordan, but I mean, I've done that all my life. And so um, we wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so leaving Jordan, that's why that was in the cards. Uh, doing something with food, well, I think my stomach is why we would choose that. Uh, I clearly have a passion for it. It's something that I really enjoy, you know, making it and especially eating it. Um, so we definitely knew that was something we wanted to do, uh, but we had no idea it was going to be India. Um, in the beginning, we thought maybe somewhere in Europe, uh, that naturally fell into place. I've lived there before. My wife is French. Uh, it, it, that's, it felt comfortable. Uh, we thought about doing something there, but, uh, what came about was that first off the investment was going to be huge. Um, and it would all have to kind of be in one place. It was a make it or break it type of situation where you put all your eggs in one basket and any person worth his salt will tell you that you should not do that. You should try to diversify as much as possible so that at least if one of your things fails, there's a couple of others that makes up for that. So that went down the toilet very fast and I'm glad that it did. Um, so the second question came up, all right, where would it make sense to have a Middle Eastern place? Uh, I, I spent 10 years of my life in the UK. Uh, you, the UK is basically India number two. Uh, 
<laughs> I know more Indian people in the UK than I know oh, English yeah. people. It's it's just a <laughs> fact of life. Uh, all my friends are Indian, and they we have more Arabic food there than we do back in Jordan. Oh wow! It I think it I think it's because it's more it's more similar to to their food than any European food. Uh, we use spices a lot more. Where heavier on the veg side of things. Uh, 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 we use rice a lot. We use our own version of roti a lot uh, with all our food. And it, it, it just, it, it feels closer to home. Actually, one of my Indian friends told me that, you know, North American or, or European food is bland. It's butter and cream and no soul. I'll disagree, but I, I take the point. <laughs> I take the point. And so, in, when, whenever when we were in Europe, these guys were eating Lebanese food all the time. And coupled with the fact that there were also tons of Indians who live in the Gulf, and they eat Lebanese food all the time, uh, the fact that there was no uh, opportunity to do that in India was kind of shocking for us. I mean, we couldn't believe it. And they were all telling us that, guys, you need to come to India and do this because nobody else is. And so we did that trip. We came here, we spent a couple of months, we spoke to a lot of people, entrepreneurs, restaurateurs, consultants, industry people all around, and we tried to figure out the market and kind of understand where it was. And we noticed that in, in the premium segment, there's a few guys there. Uh, you have Souk in the Taj, you have Rue de Liban in Fort, you have Arbab, Zima, well, actually Zima's pretty new. Um, I think there's someone called Mabruk and Sahara. I mean, in the premium segment, you have like four or five places, which which is enough, you know, that's fine. And in the bottom segment, you have your Carter's Blue and you have your street food kind of shawarmas. And those are great. Don't get me wrong. They're But they're super Indianized. So if you were looking for an authentic experience, you're not going to get it there. You'll you'll get something good, but... You won't get, you won't get authentic food. It's like, okay. it's like saying Chinese. The Chinese in India has not nothing to do with actual Chinese. Food. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this was a new term I remember. Chindi, <laughs> chindi food, and it's amazing, by the way. On another topic, Chinese food in China is a whole other thing that we don't know about, and and there's a reason you don't know about. Yeah, exactly. It. <laughs> and there's a very good reason we don't know about it. Um, but anyway, I mean, we discovered that the middle segment that mass market kind of appeal nobody's doing that i mean there's one or two players uh but they've left that authenticity behind because they wanted to attract as much people as possible so you have players who are doing falafel nachos or falafel pizza and to me that's you know that's that's <laughs> that's treacherous <blasphemous>. is blasphemy <laughs> that you can't do that and and when we saw that, we we're like, okay, there, there there's an opportunity here, and nobody's taking it, so why not? I mean, this makes sense as a business. It makes sense. There is a market for it. There's a demand for it, and India is awesome in general. Like we've come on holiday here many times in our lives because there's so much to offer. You know, from whether it's beaches or Himalayas or snow or sand or desert or forest or tigers, whatever it is, there's so much of it, mm. and. We kind of fulfill our own intrinsic desire to travel around just by being in India because in itself, India is a continent mm -hmm. and you can see what and do whatever you want. Now, we were unlucky <laughs> in that we came in March 2020, two weeks before <laughs> the lockdown. So we came, we found an apartment, we sat, and then everything stopped. 
so that was good times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd like to think we were luckier than most because um, unfortunately for the majority of people in our industry, that was a really tough time. Um, people lost their jobs. Anywhere, honestly, that wasn't a multinational kind of corporation backing it, like your Burger Kings and McDonald's and stuff like that. If you were a mom and pop shop, you there, there was nothing you could do. You know, uh, you have employees, you have rent, you have people, you have food and wastage that you lost it. Um, so I, I would consider ourselves very, very lucky that we came when we did. Um, sure, it sucked for a while that we were sitting at home, but so was everybody else. And um, so if you had actually come three months before, we would have, you been, would have been, yeah, you'd have been bankrupt because would have been everything you would have set up shop, you would have started everything, recruited people, and then. Absolutely. Before you took off. And the worst part of, would have been we would have had no brand recognition. Nobody would have known who we are. And so how do you advertise, market that? You can't really do anything. We would have been bankrupt. So I definitely consider ourselves lucky. Um, sure, we were bored in the lockdown like everybody else, but boredom makes babies and we had one. <laughs> when you said you had a one-year-old, I was going to say pandemic baby. <laughs> Absolutely. We have, we have a little baby daughter and uh, I don't think we would have had there not been a lockdown. Um, <laughs> we, like, we are so busy now. It, it, it's, it's, all, it's almost unthinkable, you know, to actually have the time to, you know, think about why not? Let's have a kid and... Well, Goa took care of that. <laughs> so when did you start the company? So if you're asking about like official company registration, that was in January 2020. Okay. Oh, okay. Because when you just came in. And when did you start operations for True Falafel? October 21. Okay. So you're coming up on two years soon. Yeah, we're a year and a half in. Year and a half in. Yeah. Uh, Today you are at seven outlets, which is fantastic for a company that's one and a half years. When you started off, what are some of the challenges that you faced? So there were tons. Um, being not from this business before obviously created a whole new set of challenges. And, and this is something that I would advise anybody to, to pursue. If, even if you're from an industry, chances are you don't know everything. And it's always good to have help. You have to ask around. In our case, asking around, even that was not enough. We had some consultants who were helping us. They were very important for two reasons. One is figuring out the industry. Two is figuring out India. So there's a whole lot to do with that, whether it's the bureaucracy, whether it's the government, whether it's the Mathadis, whether it's uh, a licensing, whether it's finding the right spots. Where do you locate yourself? We don't know. We come here on holiday. Like, we, we have no idea, you know, where people eat, what they eat, and how they eat. So, for example, we had no idea that Malabar Hill is a Jain predominantly area, and you should focus on vegetarian food there, or Malund, for that matter. But we had no idea that Mahim was quite a Muslim Christian area. So they're heavy on the non-veg there. That's where you need to go do a couple of other things. For that, you need local knowledge, which we did not have. And so having that help on board was super helpful and we needed to do that. Um, I think that was, I think that definitely helped us in the beginning. It also connected us to vendors. So we don't know where to buy your kitchen equipment. We don't know uh, how to do marketing, which companies are approachable within our budget as a startup. Uh, how much should you spend on a marketing company? We had no idea as well. I mean, all of that 
came into play. So, the, I mean, there was an industry challenge focus and there was an India challenge focus because we had never worked here before. Um, everything is different. And like any other country, when you go there and you work there, you need to understand its culture, its people, and the way they do things. And for that, it's really important that you have a local guy who will explain it all to you. So did you have uh, like one single consultant? Did you have multiple? How did you go, and go about that? Uh, so it was a... Two guys and they have a company together. Okay. One's a chef okay. and the other is a business guy. Oh, so cool. they kind of cover the the two the bases. bases. Yeah, and, that's pretty cool. Uh, super nice guys. I mean, we we've ended our relationship contractually and we remain friends and they still help us out. Like I don't know why, but <laughs> I'm very grateful for it. And uh, super duper guys. So uh, one of them also work here uh, as a side thing. Uh, he's on the committee for the National Restaurants Association of India. Nice. And so he gets us in the loop of what the industry as a whole is doing. And that also is super useful. Um, you were talking about challenges earlier. In the beginning, our business plan envisaged kind of little kiosks everywhere, dine-in only. Cloud kitchens and delivery kitchens were not a thing pre-pandemic. I'd never heard of it. Um, maybe some people were doing it, but it, it to the public, it was not known. Yeah. It was not a thing. Um, and then with the lockdowns and all of that, it did not make sense to do anything else, honestly. You didn't want to be in a mall because the malls were like super COVID-heavy and nobody wanted to go to a mall. Dining outlets as well. Um, the regulations in place did not allow for people to come and go, and people were still freaked out about coming and going. And honestly, specifically to Mo the Mumbai crowd, they want to go somewhere where there's AC. AC means closed doors inside, in each other's faces. Mm -hmm. No one wanted to risk that either. So dine-ins didn't make sense. So your only alternative was cloud kitchens. So we pivoted our business plan to, to do that. Um, and when we did, we discovered a lot of new things. And those were kind of challenging. So there's the common misconception that cloud kitchens are cheap and easy and a fantastic way to enter the industry. That is true, but that's okay. incomplete. Okay. So sure, it's cheap. The mm -hmm. equipment you need is a lot less. The space you need is less. You can be in an industrial park in the middle of nowhere, and that's completely fine. You can get a cheap place, all of that. So your startup cost is low which is fantastic. But you're, to succeed in that is much more difficult because having a dine-in is an automatic advertisement of your brand. People can see what you're about. They see your hygiene, your cleanliness, your quality. They see you as a person, the biggest brand ambassador of your product is yourself, especially in hospitality. Um, you can't do that with a cloud kitchen. You are one amongst many. And people have figured out that you don't even need a cloud kitchen. You could just do it from home. You could get an FSSI license and onboard yourself on Zomato and Swiggy, and that's it. You're golden. So you're one of literally tens of thousands. So biggest challenge in that is how do you show yourself to the world? So we went the easy way. We called ourselves true falafel because we thought we were the true thing. <laughs> it is not enough. <laughs> so I, I loved your logo and uh, the Arabic writing that's as a part of your logo. Give me a little bit of background on that. Um, so we were helped by marketing companies, obviously, that came up with that design. We wanted to stay kind of true to ourselves and and uh, convey that authentic feeling, which we really demanded of our marketing agency to come up with that brand design. 
Um, and what we came with was kind of an amalgamation of both. You can kind of see a little bit of the Taj Mahal there if you really focus into it. And it kind of, you can see the Abu Dhabi Mosque as well. <laughs> so it's a weird kind of blend between the two. And it, for us, it tells the story of Jordan and India together. And, and that's what we were trying to convey. And I, I hope it came through. <laughs> it, it, it did come through. And uh, when you named it True Falafel, obviously, because you wanted people to know hates the True Falafel. Uh, what was something that you did early on that you think is contributing to your success? Um, a lot, a lot, a okay. lot of research. <laughs> a lot of research. A lot of research. I can't even begin to describe. It took it took a year of research before we even thought of coming. Here. Oh wow! And to do that uh, when we were unemployed. <laughs> Uh, eats up your savings, uh, which which is a barrier to entry for entrepreneurs. Um, it's difficult to do, but research is so critical. Um, overdoing the research is not good, and we were doing that at some point where you know we just kind of had to cut the cord and leave. Uh, but it's so important to understand where you're going and what you're doing and how you're going to do that, and the planning of it is absolutely essential. Once you get there, you throw that all out the window. <laughs> but it's important that you have an idea of where you want to go and what you want to do. Um, uh, for, for us, it was, it was very, very important. It was super important as well, not just for yourselves, for your investors. They want to know where, what you want to do and where you want to go. And they want to know where they're, where the, what their money is going to make. And for you to sell that story credibly, the research is important. And research-backed, by industry experts, local knowledge is the most important. Otherwise, you're just some random dude who came from Jordan to India and like, who, who would want to invest in that? <laughs> when, when did you raise money? Was it before launch, after you launched the first one for the remaining? Months? Everything was before. Everything. We could not have come here without. Okay. It did not make, I mean. That is, so did you raise money in India or did you raise money in Jordan? In Jordan. In Jordan. That's, in Jordan. Is the culture of raising money around food uh, common in Jordan? No. Okay. It's not. Okay. So um, I was thinking, I was like, that, I, I, didn't, I didn't see that as like a regular, like having a tech company and getting backed is just like so much more heard of. Having a company that's leaving Jordan, coming to India, getting backed is not something I've heard of. Uh, what was a part of this, uh, the reason this happened that you have some background in MA? Did that help? For sure. Uh... Definitely. <laughs> it definitely did because I spent, you know, a, a very good part of my career coming up with the story, this presentation. What do investors want? Uh, because I was that investor. So I knew... You you were on the other side of the table, so you know what, what you'd like to say. The see. talking points. I knew what ticked and I knew what people wanted to hear. And that really helped me out. And definitely this is something that other people should definitely look into. The research is important, but figuring out what makes investors tick probably comes down to making more money for them. Sure. But but that's the basic part. It, it is absolutely the story. It is about how you market yourself and, and how you market your product and how you market your brand. And I think the food business anywhere in the world is super challenging. It's a low margin business. More, much more often than not, it fails before it succeeds. 
And investors know that. So what they believe in is the story. And we have a crazy story. Random Jordanian guys coming from Jordan to India to start a falafel brand. It is a crazy story. And people are willing to take to for. It's weird. They kind of like blanket. They, 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 they cover their eyes and, and they want to be part of that because it's so crazy. It's like Elon Musk going to Mars. It's fantastical. It doesn't make sense. We want to be a part of it. And I think that really helped. That is a fantastic story. How many food brands do you think are out there that raised money before they even started their first outlet? I have not heard of too many food I brands. don't think it's many at all, and especially not many who have no experience in food to begin with. Um, so that you would have been very good at what you did, convincing them to give you money when you have no experience in running a food a food chain. Yeah. Uh, no, like you've not even interned or worked anywhere ever, not started anything, never started a business before, yeah. and still being able to convince people to give you money. I think that required a, a big, big, big. Absolutely, like a lot of skills to be able to pull that off. Right? Absolutely. Uh, how, whose idea was it? Was it your idea or was it your wife's idea saying, let's do food? Um, that idea, let's do food, kind of came together. It's both of us. Okay. Let's do food in India was hers. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> For so sure. has she done work in India before? or? So she loves this place. She's been coming and going throughout her life. And her parents come and go throughout, even without her. Like it's... Um, she loves this place. And it was always in the back of her mind that she wanted to come here and she wanted to live here and she wanted to work here. And she was the one who was getting more bored in Jordan than I was, which makes sense. She's French. Um, I'm Jordanian. So as bored as I got, I still had family and friends that I grew up with. Uh, she did not. For her, looking outwards, she always wanted to do that. And Far East is something that she really loves. So she lived in China for five years. She speaks oh, wow. Mandarin and oh wow, yeah, she's okay. one of those like crazy people that speaks eight languages and oh wow, okay. <laughs> I'm the dumb one in the family. <laughs> that only knows one language or two languages. Yeah, <laughs> ish, ish. <laughs> half and half kind of. Uh, and so no, she 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 loves this place, and uh, her first thought was India, and I said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> so where, how long was that decision? Because to leave your own country, because he's starting something in your own country is itself difficult no matter where you are in the world. Yeah. But starting something in another part of the world, which you don't have any relatives, you don't have any business know-how of, it's not like, oh, my company did business in India for 10 years, so I, I, I've done business with, under the company I've done it, so I know the people, I know the process, which is still an easier call, but yeah. never have been done anything over here. How long did that decision take? It took a while, for sure, it took a while. Um, again, I mean, as I mentioned before, Europe was the natural calling because it made more sense to us. We've worked there before, we've lived there before, we understand the culture and the language and all of that before. I very ignorantly thought that India was very similar to Jordan. We're both kind of third world countries. We both have a massive bureaucracy. Uh, in uh, we, we rely on relationships to get by uh, rather than competence or or, <laughs> or anything like that. And I, I thought that background would help me. It did to an extent, but very small. Um, what I did what I did not figure out, and I, and I definitely, I don't want to say regret, but I definitely should have thought harder and lived longer here before taking that 
type of call, for sure. Um, but necessity is the mother of all invention. Uh, once you're here, once you have other people's money, once you've started, you better figure it out. And you do. You do. It's not rocket science. Um, making it successful it is, to an extent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but figuring out the local landscape, you have to do it because you have to do it. There's no other way. You need to get licensed. You need to get a license. How do you do that? You have to go through the process of getting a license. You figure out that there are X, Y, and Z that you need to speak to. There are these guys of that particular political party, so you need to find a guy who's in that part. It's a whole... <laughs> and, and you figure it out, man. There's, um, there's no going about it because, what? You don't get your license? What do you do? <laughs> Stay at home? And then what? So right now you've grown to seven and in a year and a half. In the next... Two years, where do you see true falafel? So, huge challenge has been scale. How do we scale properly? We've got to seven and now we're kind of freaking out. Um, <laughs> seven's a big number in a year mm -hmm. and a half. And in order to scale, uh, and we need money to do that. So, you know, appealing to investors, but that's a different story than what we came with. The beginning story was really fun, you know, crazy people coming to India. Uh, but now it's serious business. Now it has revenue. Now it has targets, it has growth prospects. It needs to scale. And we want it to scale. Uh, now we've learned a lot, many things. So one of them is the importance of having a local partner. Um, that I cannot emphasize enough how critical that is. And I think it's relevant advice to the people here as well, because when I mean local, I mean really local. So for us to expand into another city, that partner needs to be in that city and he needs to understand that city and he needs to understand the different neighborhoods in that city to understand where you need to be located, to understand what kind of food offering you need to give, to understand which price point you need to do it, to emphasize certain things about your products. So for example, am I pushing shawarma or am I pushing hummus? Am I doing it with falafels? Am I doing wraps? Is this a corporate place? Am I doing meal boxes? What am I doing in each neighborhood? And to do that, you really need a local guy to do that. So where do I see true falafel? I see it big. I see it pan India. I think there's so much potential. Honestly, I don't see us going international outside India just because there's so much to do here. <laughs> there's, there's more people here than anywhere else I could go to. So why even consider that? Um, uh, Pune is the natural choice. We can serve this out from Mumbai. That's going to be our next stop. Um, I'm... There's a new kind of highway and train mechanism that's got going to Gujarat. That's our next stop. Whether we go there as a veg-only brand or not veg and non-veg, that's up to our local partner that's going to tell us, here you need to do this and there you need to do that. And it's very important we get that right. So Gujarat could be step number three. And then obviously we have to start with the tier one cities because people there are more likely to know about our food. Um, and... Our marketing budget doesn't have to spend a lot of time on product education, where we have to kind of explain, all right, this is what this is. Um, this is superfood. This is super healthy. This is vegan. This is all of that. Um, so we go the tier one strategy, and then we slowly kind of diversify. The more people see you, the more it becomes part of the mainstream. But people forget it. It took McDonald's, what, 20 years to properly... Penetrate India. Um, Absolutely. Which product of yours do, do people understand easily and order the most? Is it 
Sharma? Is it so funny story? We actually are, are we sold our business to investors as a veg only brand, but that was ignorant. <laughs> um, <laughs> we thought India is a huge veg country. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Our 95% of our products are veg. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just our food. It's and and it's it's very part of our pitch to investors was that our ingredients are also cheap so we can be an affordable food brand uh our main ingredient is chickpeas that's just the common and and and, and every available actually india is the largest exporter of chickpeas on the planet oh wow this was one of the reasons why we wanted to come here so we were a veg only brand and then we came and then we met the locals we met our consultant who told us, no, don't be silly. <laughs> you, have to, you have to have some non-veg, especially in Bombay. So we thought, okay, we'll do non-veg. Currently, shawarmas are more than 50% of our sales. Just that one product. I think that product is what people understand the most. Uh, it also is a standalone meal by itself. Like if you have one shawarma and you're, you're done, you don't need to order like four or five things. Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're good. Like you don't have to order a dal and a roti and da, 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 right? So I think shawarma is something that most people have been exposed to. What, according to you, is one of your best products, but people haven't figured it out yet? Like authentically or taste-wise, what are you like, this is awesome. People just don't know about, so they're not trying it out. What, what is that product? So I personally love our cold mezzes. Um, Arabic food is a bit like Spanish food where you have a ton of little kind of, a, like a tali. Mm. Um, you have a ton of little appetizers and you eat kind of everything. And I love that. Um, I don't like to sit and have that one thing. I, <laughs> I like to like everything. And, and I also like what's left in my plate. That's, that's the whole kind of like leftover mixture. I think that's my favorite bite of a meal. <laughs> so I like those cold messes. Um, my favorite is mutabbal. It's like an eggplant, tahini, yogurt, garlicky kind of thing. Um, people often mistake it with baba ganoush. Mm-hmm. So it's been a challenge kind of like getting the two together. Um, baba ganoush is, is also eggplant-based, but it doesn't have tahini, it doesn't have yogurt, it doesn't have a whole bunch of It's other. a lot more eggplant. Yeah. Then exactly, it's it's a very eggplant flavored thing as opposed to whole different. Uh, but yeah, for me, tabal is, is the one that rocks. How, I mean, back home we have the beverages, but they're completely different to to what we would have here. Okay. So it's been a challenge for us rolling that out. So far, we've stuck to our soft drinks, just your Almost. thumbs up, your Coca Cola. But the more we venture, because it, because we're a majoritarily d- delivery brand, having beverages didn't make so much sense to us. But now that we're going in a more dine-in kind of route, having an authentic beverage makes sense. So what we have at home is something called Iran. Um, and Iran is basically a salty lassi. Oh, nice. But it's more bland than a salty lassi. And I didn't want us to be known as the Indian hospital food. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, we do what you do just a little bit more like toned down and bland. And I'm like, right, yeah, okay. I don't want to do that. Um, uh, we, we considered soups, for example, as well. And one of the best Arabic soups that we have is called Shorbet Adas. It's a, basically lentil soup. It is so close to dal, but with a ton less spices. So it's like dal you would have in a hospital. And I didn't want to go down that route. If it's too similar to what you would get here, 
then I want to stay away from it because inevitably people will compare the two. And you don't want to be like that. No one makes better Indian food than Indian people. And if you start get to somewhere where people are like, oh, yeah, this is really just a bad dal, <laughs> then... <laughs> yeah, you may actually end up losing your core business as well. Absolutely. When you are growing a company like yours, your teammates would be a very large part of your growth story. Absolutely. Because they are the final ones delivering the food. They're the final ones creating the final product. What do you look for when you onboard a new teammate? Uh, so this is, a, this is something that I found quite challenging in this particular profession. So in the food industry in general, turnover is really oh, yeah, of high. Course. Um, we try to motivate people as much as possible in order to retain them because it takes a long time to train somebody um, in how one how you make your own food and how you operate. So one of the f one of the main things I like to see when I'm hiring a person is kind of commitment. So if his CV shows me or her CV shows me that it's three months between each and every position, that signals to me that this person will leave at the next possible opportunity and will not really give this one a shot. So commitment and, and for me is, is quite a big thing. Um, discipline. Um, so what, and by discipline, I mean uh, what we do is, is high volume, almost mechanical without thinking. Um, so you kind of need to be on your toes. You will have 100 orders in, in, in an hour, and you need to make sure every order comes out right. Um, and for that, you need discipline, you need focus. And in an interview, you can kind of judge that a little bit. You see where their eyes wander off to. You see how they speak. You see if they stick to a particular topic or they, you know, talk about everything that goes on in their lives. So for me, the discipline, the focus, and the commitment, these are the main things I kind of look on. I don't particularly care if you know how to cook. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So you will hire people who have no experience Absolutely. making food. Absolutely. Because that's a skill that you perfect and you learn and you make it happen. I like how you think on that. Uh, if you actually open that door up, you will not have a dearth of good people. Because if you are able to take a fresher with a good attitude. Absolutely. And you become their first employer. Absolutely. You'll be able to unlock so many new people. If you ask anyone in the food industry, they will tell you there's a massive labor shortage. And I disagree. I disagree. So a there, is, there is a massive labor shortage for experienced people. And maybe that's... I, I was talking to somebody earlier today and uh, we were talking about the food industry and we were discussing how long do people stay. So I said, if somebody has stayed with you for more than a year, you've probably done something good in your last life. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no way. Because I have so many friends from the industry, they're like, the average shelf life is nine months. Six months to nine Fair. months. Fair. And people just will move for like 500 rupees more and they will jump somewhere else. Absolutely, that's the thing. The problem then is they come to, they hit a ceiling which they will never be able to cross, right? If you want to grow within the organization, being there longer will help you get promoted faster. Would I be accurate by saying that? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, when you raise money, what is the most difficult part for a food company to raise money? Uh, so currently in this environment, especially this year, there is no money. Uh, liquidity has dried up and uh, investors are quite uh, um, 
holding on to their capital they want to see what happens next india is, is is a lucky place it's kind of insulated a little bit i actually think it's probably one of the only places on the planet that is a little bit insulated from this global recession that's coming and, and freaking everyone out uh, but investors nevertheless are kind of freaked out and they're not lending money in the year last year it was a free-for-all um this year it's not like that at all so one of the challenges, especially when you're a delivery-oriented business, is that you're kind of, a lot of the costs that you have are outside your control. We depend on aggregators, um, and this is a whole conversation that we could have, but basically they are respond, they take close to half your revenue. Oh, wow, I thought it was like 20%, 30%? 20, let's say 20 to 30, mm. in terms of, when you sign the contract of being on their website and deliverable, 20 to 30. But to be visible on your website, on their website, that you need to pay for. Um, which again, I mean, if we go back to saying, you know, starting a cloud kitchen, what do you need to invest in? This is a big thing that you need to invest in and it goes to the aggregators and it's called CPC, cost per click. Um, how do people know about you? They know about you by seeing your brand. How do they see your brand? for it how long does it take a cloud kitchen to become cash positive typically so it depends uh, if you're talking about a business that's just this one cloud kitchen if it's just a, that's it that's the guy he's doing this and he's not going anywhere else if six months one year I can't, I can't answer that because it really depends. Um, okay, let me, let me turn the question around. When you start a new outlet, how long does it take you to become cash positive? So for me, the more I start, the more outlets I start, the lesser that period goes. Because I, I have my customers now. I have a brand name. I, people know who you are. So getting to cash positive is a lot faster now than it was back then. Back then, it took a year. Now it takes, it should take three to four months. Nice. If it doesn't, then I think that this area is not working, this place is not working. Either we have to fix it, shut it down, or move somewhere else. Till now, have, we, have you ever had to shut down an outlet? Yes. Okay. Is that painful? Extremely. <laughs> it's extremely painful. Of course, I mean, no one wants to admit failure, mm -hmm. but you really need to know when to cut the cord. Mm -hmm. um, it could be that the outlet is actually selling well, but the guys in there are not doing it properly and your ratings are low. Mm. And you're not giving good food and that damages your brand in the long term. Um, it could be the other way, obviously, that you know the ratings are super high, but there's not enough growth, there's not enough demand in that particular location. Um, so it is difficult. It is difficult from uh, your own ego mm -hmm. perspective mm -hmm. to admit failure. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why we came to India is that within our particular budget, we could open several places. Mm -hmm. And that was how we sold it to investors. Like, mm -hmm. guys, if a location doesn't work, mm -hmm. we can close it and open somewhere else. So we have that protection. And if you tell people that you're going to do that, you should follow through. <laughs> of course. 
as painful as it is, and it is really painful because you really put an effort to make that place as an excess. And if it doesn't work for reasons in your control or outside of your control, you need to know when to cut the cord. Um, but it is difficult because there are stuff you don't get back. You mm -hmm. spend a lot of effort negotiating for licenses. You're never going to get that back. Uh, you put an investment into the look into the civil infrastructure in the location. You're not going to get that back. Uh, you'll get some of your equipment back. Uh, you'll get some of your team, but otherwise, there's so, a lot. To, there's a lot of sunk costs. Yeah, there's a lot of sunk costs. Okay, so I'm going to change gears for a little bit now. Uh, you are a new father. How is that experience? Crazier than a business, actually. It's crazier <laughs> than starting your own business. It's been wild. Um, it's crazy how they change your perspective uh, on what's important in life. You know, when we first came here, it was all about the business and the numbers, and, the, and you, you're, you, that's all you're thinking about. That's all you're doing. And then your baby arrives, and you're just like, huh, <laughs> like, I don't, does any of this matter? And then you think, yeah, actually, it does, because I need to make it work for her. And then your priorities change because, and actually, I feel like I work a lot harder now that I know it's for her. Um, it, it, it really, it creates your discipline and it cre and gives you that motivation. Um, I, for one, well, I love it. <laughs> I didn't sleep at all last night. Mm -hmm. Okay, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> It's, it's, it's fantastic. Wow. You come home and and they're happy to see you. It You forget about your day. It's Whenever uh, we talk about kids, it lights up a spark, right? Many people can use that as an excuse not to do their best, saying that, hey, I just want to spend time only on the kid and nothing else, which is amazing for the kid, but may not be the best for the person. Yeah. Uh, however, when you use that as a motivation of, hey, I want to do be the best I can be so that I can motivate my kid to do better, those people land up rising a lot higher. 100%. And they, they land up motivating their kids a lot more, right? When you see your kid growing up and you see your daughter growing up, what are two things you would want her to imbibe? Like what characteristics would you want her to imbibe from you? I mean, well, that's a, <laughs> uh, that's a heavy one. So, I mean, integrity is key. It, it's what I feel that's what defines you as a person. How, if you have that in you, it penetrates into everything you do, your kids, your business, your life, your relationship with people. Um, and discipline and perseverance is taking that and making something out of it. Um, for me, in the beginning, when, I, when we first found out that my wife was pregnant, so my wife, we work together, right? It's our thing. We panicked because... <laughs> One, as any panic like of having a kid would generate. The the other one was how how the hell can we manage a business with a kid? It's not possible. And we both work at this business, so they're what like we're gonna get a nanny and leave her with a nanny. We don't want to raise a kid that way either. You know, we want to be there. So figuring that out was 
difficult and challenging. And now that we, and we definitely don't have it figured it out yet, but we manage it in such a way where today I'm here, I'm talking to you and I'm working. Tomorrow I'll be at home with her. After tomorrow, we'll both be at the kitchen and she'll play with the fire. Like we will, we somehow integrate her into the whole thing and we don't miss time with her and we don't miss time with the business. And it's a really difficult thing to do that. But when you do it, it's really fulfilling to do that. And I like, to, if, if, if you're asking me what I would like to imbibe in her, is that you can have your cake and eat it too. You just have to plan it properly. <laughs> Very nice. You just won't sleep. A <laughs> couple of people you interviewed actually have their own podcast. That's pretty cool, man. It makes sense. Uh, I, I, I mean, I follow the fact that uh, there's a lot of interesting people that I meet in my life. And unfortunately, our interactions are limited to a five-minute conversation. And I really want to know more, but we, we simply don't have either the time or there's a lot of people around and you, and you can't. So to really delve in and understand their perspective. So to go deeper, so this actually gives me the discipline that we're doing this every two weeks. I'm interviewing so many people whether I like it or not. So it's no longer based on motivation. It's become a habit for me. And now that's something I look forward to. So every, so we do this Fridays. So I look forward to those Fridays because I'm like, okay, I'm going to be three, four new people. And I'm going to learn all of these new things, right? So I'm always excited to do that. Do you have any other questions for me? Yeah, another question would be, so you have multiple companies and, and you kind of follow multiple paths. Is your modus operandi in such a way where that, okay, you see an opportunity in a particular place and you go for it, or is it a particular, all of these companies come from a passion to do each particular thing, or how do you, how do you kind of pursue? I, 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 excellent question. So many, it's not only opportunity-based because I'll end up seeing new opportunities every day. What needs to kind of line up is the opportunity and am I passionate about it? Am I going to work tirelessly 40, 50, 60 hour weeks to be able to pursue that? Because there are other things already there, they're growing. So it's always like, hey, do I just kind of double down on the one thing that I have or do I also try out something new? Now, in the last couple of years, I have not started new companies. What I've started doing is within our companies, we've started new divisions. We've started something called Special Projects, which is, at this moment, we have 38 of them wow. at Equinox Labs alone, where we're testing out new concepts. We're testing out, so the itch of mine earlier, which is like, oh, let me start a new company around this. I'm like, okay, let me start a new team. So you're still getting the protection yeah. of the larger entity. You still have all the other structures in place. Because when you start a new company, you have to replicate a lot of the, what's already there. Absolutely. Right? Other companies. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, we've started doing a lot more and now we've just started going deeper in areas we understand rather than just jumping into a completely new area. You go for depth rather than breadth. Right now, so I, I've done the width before and it's not been successful, right? Uh, so till, da till date, we've had two exits. So we've sold two of our companies where we've, we've gone deep, but just not too deep. So we sold them off maybe a little early stages. Uh, now we are going super deep. We are saying no to any uh, options of you know buying us out or anything that way because I think there is a lot more that we can explore. Like even in Equinox Labs, we're a laboratory, but we have a tech team, and people don't understand. They're like, why do you have a tech team? Like, yeah. Can't you just buy a software? I'm like, no, all our software is custom made. They're like, isn't it a lot more expensive? It's ten times more expensive Absolutely. to have custom made stuff, but it allows us to scale infinitely. Yeah. 
because now all our SOPs, the way we want them, are in our software. The way we want to scale is already there. So when we have to add a new lab, it's literally like file, new lab, boop, it's done, yeah. right? When we activate a new salesperson, it's literally a two-minute job to activate a new salesperson anywhere in the country. Oh, wow. A new collection agent can be onboarded in 30 seconds. A new auditor can be onboarded in two minutes. Obviously, the training would take one day, two days, seven days. Yeah. But onboarding them and their process is already in your software. So that's been... That's very cool. That's, 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 I, I find that pretty cool, right? And so anytime we're starting something new, we're looking at what is the impact that this can have? Is it big enough? Is the opportunity big enough? And two, are we, do we have the right skill sets to be able to execute that? Because in the past, it's been a great opportunity, has amazing impact. We didn't have the right skill sets. Yeah. And the last, the fourth ingredient in all this is are we passionate about this? Yeah. Like, are we going to put our blood, sweat, and tears behind this? If the answer is yes, then we do it. If the answer is no, they're like, okay, it's a great opportunity, but somebody else can do it. Makes sense. Absolutely. And there are so many times I've actually told people about the opportunity saying that, hey, guys, there's a great thing. They're like, oh, what are you doing about it? I'm like, I am not, I'm not, I don't have this specific skill. Or I'm just not passionate about this area. Why don't you guys, I mean, here's the thing. You you pursue, want, like, yeah. Here's what I've research I've done. Take it. If you want to do something, if you're passionate, they're like, oh, I love this thing. Take it. Take it and go. Please. It should be automatic. It should be automatic. Literally like going into a file and saying, add new entry. Yeah. There's the, I'll just put the address and all the SOPs show up. They know what they need to do. So getting the systems and processes down before you go from a 7 to a 70 would be critical. right? And that also becomes your IP. Saying that, hey, everything of mine is automated. So when you have to go raise your next round, it's going to be a lot more easier if you have your dedicated IP in place. Saying, hey, I have my tech, I have my SOP, whatever. It's already in place. Yeah. The second would be you should be going pan-India. I'm not saying overnight. Uh, you already have a decent coverage of the city. And many a times, these two are not directly related. What I mean by that is I see a lot of small companies that are like, okay, I will only do, okay, I have five now. I'll only do six in, in Mumbai, and then I'll wait for another year before I do Delhi. Why? These so are, for me, it would be to get to that first step, to make sure I have the proper SOPs in place where... Because if I open in Delhi now, I will have to be in Delhi 24-7 making sure everything is correct. correct. I don't want to do that. Correct. I want to be able to have that add new. So here is the last piece. Develop people that you can trust. Develop people with that skill set. You may need to pay more for that. So if you have, let's say, five people in the outlet, there needs to be one solid guy. The other four can be coming and going. You can have, they can go and four more new people can come and be fine for you. Develop those people. Now, when you find a new guy, pay him a little more, ask him to go to Delhi. You're there for the first week, you set up the whole store, you hand over the keys to the dude, and you walk away. You need to have trust, you need to have systems, and you need to have people. If you have that, scaling becomes easier. Like, I know so many people who've gone from 10 restaurants to 70 restaurants. How do you do that? People. They've gone from one hotel to eight hotels in three years. Like, eight, like, and all That's over crazy. the country, I'm like, how the hell are you managing that? people. Absolutely. He's like, oh, my GM from here is now the main guy there. Oh, this guy should be an assistant manager. He's the GM there. Right. So they just, they find key people and that ability to find the right talent, hone that, show them what they're capable of doing. Like, hey, if you go somewhere else, you'll just go, you'll just go at this level. If you stay with me, I can take you here. Absolutely. Being able, and if people are able to see this, some of them will stick around. Not all, some will. When they do, make sure they grow. And the best way is put them in charge of an outlet. Absolutely. Maybe in a different city, there's a cost of relocation, but guess what? The cost of relocation, the extra cost is nothing compared to your 
cost of being there for six months. Absolutely. Or the opportunity cost of that actual outlet failing, for example. Yeah. Uh, A big part, and the reason I'm a big promoter of grow quickly, if something is working, there are going to be copycats. And I take that as a compliment, but I also take that as a threat. Because if I start a new concept and it's doing well locally, and I know there's a market here, there's a market here, and if I don't go fast enough and somebody else goes there, if I go there a year later, now I'm going to look like the copycat. Absolutely. Because for that market, the they're like, oh, he was there first. Yeah. Right? So when you have something good, being able to spread that fast helps. So that speed needs to come in. And if I were you for the next three months, I would just hunker down, get my SOPs right, get my tech in place, identify key people, and then every two months, three months, open one, 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 one new outlet to a point where you have a person who will actually go and open those outlets for you. Absolutely. So in the pandemic, we actually launched four new labs without me leaving this place. There are labs I haven't been seen. I have not stepped foot on that land. That lab has been built, it's operating, people have been there, they've been trained, they're getting audited as we speak for NABL. They're gonna get NABL, I mean, which is one of our biggest accreditations. Most labs, take three to five years to apply for the accreditations. We apply for it in three to six months. Oh, wow. Because again, SOPs are in place. So our, all our satellite labs have the exact same SOP. So it's, if I have tomorrow go international, it's the exact same playbook. Here's the playbook, here's a copy of it. Here's how you, here's the processes, here's the software. Here's one person from here who will help you run this thing. You were asking me before uh, what, what I'm looking for when I interview people, it's that stuff. So for me, it doesn't matter if you're a cook. If you're able to learn and follow the SAPs to the letter, then you can be whatever you want. And so if I was in your place, I would actually take people who are not from the industry and give them, teach them the ability to how to manage an entire store by themselves or entire kitchen by themselves and help them scale. Because if they're not from the industry, they're not, they don't, they're not looking like the next day because that's the trend that starts in that industry. Yeah. So take freshers, take... They may be puppy-eyed when they come in, but they leave like a lion when they, a year later, they're a lion. I've now move that lion to a different territory, help him capture that territory. And I think that's won't be the fastest way for you to scale, right? Uh, I mean, thank you so much for sharing, uh, you know, so much about your journey. I was extremely inspired by your journey. I'm extremely inspired by your brand. I'm going to be trying your food literally today after this. Your, your food is getting ordered. Literally, my team is ordering it right now. It's going to be coming here for lunch. and. Uh, I can't wait to taste it. And two, I can't wait for you to see you grow because I know you're doing something right because five people spoke about you and I mentioned that, oh, I'm interviewing somebody who's been doing falafels. They're like, is it true falafels? Uh I was like, how did you know? He's like, they have a pretty cool story. So I'm assuming you're interviewing him. And I was like, you've done something right. When, When that happens, when people speak well of you when you're not in the room, I think you've done something right. Well, that's great to hear. And I, and I think, <laughs> and I, I'm hoping that that happens with us. But I, when I heard that, I was like, I know you're doing something right. I know you're doing something scalable. And you're doing it the right way. You're building it slowly. However, in the next year or two. Step on the gas. You need to step on the gas. Yeah. Otherwise, and you may be fine where you are. You may be happy where you are, which is okay. But if you're not, go faster, not slower. Absolutely. You will not regret going faster. You will regret going slower. If you f- go fast and one or two things fail, 
that regret is better than you going slow and five years later wondering like, huh, I just have seven. I missed that. I missed that. I mean, I should have opened Delhi. I should have opened Hyderabad. Like, I didn't look at like Chennai. Yeah. And now there, there are three other brands that are out. And now if I go there, I'm going to look like there are three other people exactly in my space with five stores each. Yeah. Now I'm going to be the new guy. So regret, you'd rather regret failure than regret not starting. Absolutely. That would be my last, last piece of advice. Right. Thank sense. you so much, Amir, for being on the show. Thank you for it was me. amazing talking to you. Com very inspired by your story. I don't think I have it in me to leave everything and go to another country. But if I ever do, I'm going to be coming to you for advice and figuring out how to research that. Anytime. I can't say I'm the best person to come to, but uh... but you did it. Yeah. Uh, that I think that 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 speaks for itself. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me.